Augustus Hammond Conant was born on October 16, 1811 in Vermont into an old Yankee family of devout Baptists. His father, Eben, was a farmer, and Augustus got his schooling when farm duties permitted. Conant's grandfather, Ebenezer, was a lay theologian, deeply interested in matters religious, and religion was a common household topic of conversation, and one which Augustus took with great seriousness. On July 14 of 1830, when he was 19 years old, Augustus wrote in his journal, I, Augustus Hammond Conant, do this day resolve to break myself of every evil practice and to forsake every sin as revealed to me by the light of reason, so help me God. He was a very ambitious young man. To the great consternation of his family, he adopted a universalist belief in the eventual forgiveness of all sins. He was a restorationist, believing that you spent a little bit of time in hell to get the sin burned out of you, but eventually you did get to heaven, as opposed to the death and glory universalists who believe that you die and you're in heaven right away. None of this go to hell. You get a, you get a de- get out of uh, hell free card if you were a death and glory universalist. But in spite of his heresy, he was still received into his parents' Baptist church. Augustus wanted to go to college, and he wanted to enter a profession, perhaps even ministry, but his father disapproved. Conan's biographer, Robert Collier, remarked that Eben thought there were too many professional men already. He feared also that a course of study would unfit his son for the active duties of life. He preferred also that Augustus should be a farmer. And so, at last, it was settled that a farmer he should be. And Augustus was reasonably content to be a farmer, but the farming in the rocky hills of Vermont was not the most rewarding of pastimes, and he listened with great longing to stories of the rich, clear soil of the far west in lands with exotic names like Illinois. In 1832, he decided he would go west and see for himself if it really was all that he had been told. And except for one thing, it was. That one deep scar on the beauty of the lands he traveled through was the reality of slavery. While traveling aboard a steamboat on the Ohio River, Conant saw one of the crew, a free man, seized by slave hunters who claimed the man was a runaway slave in spite of the fact that the crewman had all the necessary papers to prove his free status. Conant noted in his journal that had the ship's captain not gone with the man to the magistrate to speak on his behalf, everyone on board was sure the man would have been taken back down the river and sold back into slavery. For Conant, this was a life-changing experience. He wrote in his diary, I would not exchange the cold, rough hills of Vermont, uncontaminated as they are with the breath of slavery, for the finest country ever cultivated by the slave. And he became a fiercely committed abolitionist. But the free territory of Illinois impressed him so greatly, he persuaded his entire family to pick up and leave Vermont and settle by the Des Plaines River in 1835. Young Augustus did indeed become a farmer. He married 17-year-old Betsy Kelsey, who turned 18 the month after their wedding. He read voraciously, giving himself the education he had always wanted, and he became an activist for the causes of temperance and abolition. 
He made himself really unpopular in the village of Wheeling on the 4th of July, 1837, when at the age of 27, he delivered a public oration denouncing the institution of slavery. That was not what the good townspeople had expected to be listening to on the 4th of July. Conant was shouted down and run out of town. His response was to take the text to Chicago to get it printed, and he plastered the various settlements west of Chicago with copies, thereby earning a reputation as both a troublemaker and a champion of the deepest ideals of freedom and community. That same summer, just about a month before his abolition speech, Conant had picked up a copy of James Freeman Clark's Unitarian newspaper, The Western Messenger, at the Clark family's general store in Chicago, and he was deeply impressed. He ordered copies of back issues, he subscribed to the journal itself, he purchased and read the works of William Ellery Channing, one of the principal founding voices of American Unitarianism, and he began attending Unitarian meetings and worship in Chicago. Conan's journal for the weeks after his discovery of Unitarianism contains the following entries, and these entries are typical for Conan's journal. Meeting at my house, I read a sermon, began to read The Western Messenger, made a back kitchen, made a wagon, made a cheese press, Unwell, so studied algebra. <laughs> Attended meeting and read a sermon of Channing's. Went to the mill. Returned from the mill. Went to the millers to read Channing. Unwell, so wrote temperance address. <laughs> he wasted no time. Farming apparently did leave him plenty of free time, and he became a lay preacher, reading widely in the liberal theology of the day, and writing sermons dealing with temperance, abolition, and the Unitarian faith in one God and a simple, practical Christianity. He traveled around the frontier area of northeastern Illinois, preaching his newly found liberal faith, and among the places he visited was a small outpost called Geneva. Here he encountered a group of transplanted New England Unitarians who were interested in establishing a church of their own in the wild frontier town. But they were true New Englanders. They wanted a minister with a proper Harvard education to lead them. So in May of 1840, after settling his wife and their two children into Betsy's family's home in Vermont, Conant set off for Cambridge to cram a three-year ministry program into less than one year. On June 27, 1841, having succeeded in that endeavor, he was ordained as an evangelist. Two days later, he left to collect his family in Vermont and headed back for Illinois, not just to help form a new religious society at Geneva, but also as a Unitarian missionary to the entire surrounding area. Getting this society started took a lot of time and hard work. Even though it had been the Geneva Unitarians who'd sent Conant off to Harvard, it still wasn't until May of 1842 that there was any sort of official organizational meeting. And at that meeting, those 20 or so who were present weren't sure the time was right for establishing a church after all. Geneva was not regarded as a particularly promising missionary field. In Conant's words, in a description he wrote in 1851, a Methodist minister had sometimes preached here, but for want of encouragement had abandoned the place. <laughs> 
There had also been Episcopal and Presbyterian and Baptist preaching, and I was informed that there had been as many as 10 unsuccessful attempts made by ministers of one religious denomination or another to sustain worship or establish a society in the place. The moral and religious reputation of the village was low. Intemperance, profanity, and disregard for the Sabbath were characteristic of Geneva in 1841. I can see why the Unitarians thought this was their place. (laughs) On June 12th of 1842, they met again and officially established the first Christian congregation of Geneva. Still, as Conant wrote later, there were very few present at the formation of the society, and the prospect of maintaining our existence was rather dubious. The group met in a variety of inconvenient places, private homes, the old courthouse, a log schoolhouse, which was very cold and had mice scampering along the rafters, to the delight and amusement of the children present, but to the annoyance of the adults the basement of the American house, and a store in which the smell of the whiskey in the storeroom below them was irritating to the temperance folk and distracting to the others. (laughs) They needed a place of their own. On May 20th of 1843, a building committee was organized. Polly Patton, the Patton family for whom Patton House Next Door has been named, a Unitarian from the Roxbury, Massachusetts Church, and later the wife of Geneva's Samuel Nye Clark, returned to Roxbury after a visit to Geneva, persuaded that the church there should hold a fair and convinced them to do it. They held a basically a fancy ice cream social to raise money to build a church in wild Geneva. The building was put up and it was dedicated in January of 1844. The original building had two doors at that end. It ended right about there, was missing the last two windows here, had a high pulpit, had a balcony at the back, and was a very different looking place from what we have here today. This is the modern revision. Today the church looks much as it did in the time of its restoration in 1879. So that's the modern look we have now. (laughs) The congregation grew sufficiently that the original building did have to be expanded in 1855, the first of several renovations. And as with the original building, Augustus and his father, Eben, both did a lot of the hands-on work. Conant had an unlimited practical compassion, and he was always sharing his skills and his possessions with others. When he first came to Geneva with his wife and family before they were able to build their own home, they rented two rooms in Mrs. Harrington's house. Shortly after moving in, Conant encountered a destitute homeless family, husband, wife, and child. And the four Conants, with a fifth Conant on the way, gave up one of their two rooms to that family. Whenever Augustus came into possession of something of value, high-quality cloth for a coat, for example, given to him by a member of the congregation, he would send half of it off to someone else, or he would sell it and then have twice as much to share. Physically, as I noted, he was not particularly impressive. He was about as tall as I am, and when he first visited Geneva as an itinerant preacher, the general impression was that he was one of the area farm boys come into town for supplies. Robert Collier wrote that he was quaintly dressed, they say, and did not promise much at first glance. 
I suppose he was not a bit like Dr. Lowell, the Unitarian preacher they had left behind in Boston, but when he had once preached to them, they felt it was all right, recognized the fine soul under the odd garb, and made him welcome with all their hearts and invited him to come again. Conant was, said another, a quaint figure from which spoke a great soul. And by all reports, Conant was, in fact, rather a good preacher. He had to be to hold people's attention. His style would not be well received today, I suspect. He kept his nose firmly in his manuscript. He tended to be a bit fidgety, and he had a facial tick that seems to have become more noticeable when he was preaching than when he was in conversation with someone. But as one Geneva noted, no matter if the first impression was unfavorable, he soon swept that away by his zeal, his genuineness, and his self-forgetfulness. All in all, Augustus's ministry in Geneva was a good one, people remembering him at the church's 50th anniversary celebrations in 1892 recall a man deeply involved in caring for his people, admired and respected by the community, loving and much loved by the children of the church, even if he did handle discipline problems with his own sons during church services by making the boys sit at the foot of the high pulpit where he could keep an eye on them. He served not only this Geneva church, but also a dozen or so other churches on alternate weekends, preaching regularly at Elgin, Joliet, Rockford, Batavia, where he reported finding great prejudice against us, Sugar Grove, St. Charles, Warrenville, Naperville, Chicago, Aurora, Belvedere, and up into the Wisconsin Territory. He earned a modest denominational reputation as a Western missionary, making speaking and fundraising trips back east, not just for Geneva's sake, but for the entire frontier field. There was just one problem, and that was the issue of slavery. Conant was before his time in his opposition to slavery, except for Theodore Parker back in Boston, and Parker was considered a somewhat dangerous eccentric for this too, there was very little open opposition to slavery among the Unitarians in the 1840s and 50s. While few of the original Geneva congregation agreed with Conant's abolitionist passion, those who had been with him from the beginning tended to tolerate his anti-slavery rantings. The newer people coming into the church in the 1850s, however, seemed not to have been quite so tolerant, especially since they, as merchants with economic ties to the institution of slavery, considered themselves to be under personal attack. The Reverend Elsie Kelsey, who I think was Betsy's brother and also a Unitarian minister in the area, described a Sunday when Conant had been preaching a sermon upon the terrible evil of human slavery as it then existed in this country. While in the midst of his most fervent utterances, a prominent member of the society took his hat and in an excited and unceremonious manner left the church. In the morning, Kelsey continues, Brother Conant, in referring to the incident, remarked to me that he did not notice any great change in the usual appearance of things. The sun arose, as usual. The sky looked as bright and as beautiful as ever. And such little episodes, however unpleasant, could not hinder the onward march of truth and the ultimate triumph of the right. The divisions and the opposition did affect him, however, however calmly he tried to take them. 
He lost one of his main supporters with the death in 1856 of Samuel Clark. And rather than split the church, Conant decided in the summer of 1857 to accept a call from the Unitarian Church in Rockford to go and serve there. For 16 years, since August of 1841, he had served the Geneva Church. But as he wrote in his journal, it was a clear case of duty to leave them, and most fervently do I commend them to the favor of God. Conant spent about four years in Rockford, but he never seems to have been truly at home there. His ties were to Geneva, and the uprooting nearly broke his heart. In 1861, he resigned his ministry at Rockford and enlisted as a chaplain, combination of spiritual counselor with what we would call a practical medic, with the 19th Illinois Regiment in the Army of the Union. His military career was not particularly smooth, and that should not come as a surprise to anybody. There were frequent confrontations with the men he was trying to serve over the evils of strong drink. And because some of the Union soldiers and officers were not above returning an escaped slave or letting slave owners search the camps for runaways in return for monetary rewards, he was continually hiding runaways himself and then daring anyone to search his tent to find them. And the fact that no one ever dared search the chaplain's tent tells you a great deal about his force of character. He battled for improved living conditions and better health care for his men with some success. And he battled the itinerant preachers who wanted to come into the camps and preach hellfire and damnation before the men went off into battle. He did not have a high opinion of these folks. And in one letter home to Betsy commented that if one if one pious Orthodox sister commented of one pious Orthodox sister, excuse me, that I hope in the Lord's good time he will take her to glory. <laughs> I am sure I should much prefer that all such sisters should go to glory than come into camp. I hardly know which is more annoying, orthodox bigotry and cant, or infidel blasphemy and cursing. Both are bad enough. The hope of doing some good still keeps me in heart. At the end of 1862, Conan's regiment wound up at Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The new year began with heavy fighting there, the Battle of Stone River. And Conant, working in the battlefield hospital, was everywhere, helping the wounded of both sides. His son, Neroy, was also stationed at Murfreesboro, and it was Neroy who wrote home at the end of January to tell his mother and sister how Conant had fallen ill. His disease, he wrote, is inflammation of the lungs, caught from overwork during the battle. I saw him a number of times as the battle went on and tried to persuade him not to do so much, but he said he could not bear to see wounded soldiers suffer when he could help them. Neroy wrote home hopefully of recovery, but by the 6th of February, Augustus himself told his son, I shall not probably live, but I have no fear of death. I am ready and willing to go at any time God may call me, and but for the pain of the separation from you and the dear ones at home, I should have no wish to live. But the good Father who watches over us all will care for and protect you when I am gone. He suffered a relapse on the 7th, received opiates to relieve the pain. 
On Sunday the 8th, he woke enough to greet, and if I'm reading the historical record correctly, misidentify an old friend there to visit and help. And early that afternoon, Augustus Conant died. He was not yet 52 years old. Conant's body was returned to this church here in Geneva for burial. His old friend Robert Collier delivered the funeral oration. His infant son, Augustus Turchin Conant, whom he never saw, was baptized on his coffin. Little Augustus lived only two years, and he's buried up at the old Geneva Cemetery next to his father. At the funeral, Collier read this tribute written by a soldier who had handed it to Nairoi. Many hearts will be made sad when they hear that our chaplain has gone to his rest. Many a fearless soldier's eye will grow wet when he hears that the brave and noble chaplain who dared the dangers of Stone River, who never turned aside for bullet or shell, but where balls flew thick and fast, sought out the wounded and administered to their wants, is dead. Never while I live can I forget him as I saw him on the field with his red flag suspended on a ramrod, marching fearlessly to the relief of the suffering, appearing to the wounded soldier like a ministering angel. I can never forget the night of the 31st December when he labored all the long night seeking the wounded. I can hear his voice now, loud and clear in the still air, crying, Any wounded here that need help? And so he labored to the end, taking no rest. When we said, Chaplain, you must rest or you will die, he always replied, I cannot rest, boys, while you suffer. If I die, I will die helping you. All lives have an inherent meaning, existing as they do in what theologians call the mind of God. The only meaning we can know, however, is in the meaning that we ourselves give to our own lives and to the lives of others. That meaning is found in the connections each life makes with the others around it, the gifts of service and sharing and joy, the examples of integrity, compassion, and courage, the foibles and the weaknesses that can also teach by example, ultimately the embodiment of a philosophy of living, a faith that may not reduce easily to creeds or affirmations, but that is clearly visible in the day-to-day -day interactions of the soul with all the rest of the world. The meaning of a life does not lie in what one has accumulated, nor in how successfully one has conducted one's business, nor in how many unrelated individuals have heard one's name. The meaning is in the human connections, and in what those who are touched by each life choose to make of them and choose to remember. We tell and we retell Conan's story because his story is one of connection, of community, and of the faith, the conviction, the courage, and the service that most of us, I would hope, would want our own lives to show as we too seek to choose the deeper path of living. As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take this flame, each of you, into the chalice of your own heart. Carry its light, its warmth, its message of beauty and hope out into the world that needs you. 
go forth together and be peace. Blessed be and amen.